Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together and talk about board games. And we've got a great episode this time. On this episode are Mozart Games, Meeple and the Moose, The Meeple Dungeon, Board and Game with Andrew Buchholz, All Games New and Old, Definitely a board game podcast, board game hot takes, and cardboard conjecture. And I'm gonna mention it. Check out the show notes. There's links, you know, to the cast if you're interested. Of course you're interested. So enjoy. Hey everybody, this is Chris Morris back again for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. If you don't follow me on Twitter already, you can check me out there as Spidermo, that's Spider with a Y, for some of my insights into board gaming, craft beer, and some random rants and raves. This week I was able to play a classic game that I've always enjoyed, but haven't played in a long time, called Nirashima Hex, which is a 2006 game from designer Mikhail Oretz and published by Portal Games. It's a post-apocalyptic skirmish game using tiles that players draw from their personal army stacks. Each of the four factions that are in the base game play very differently from one another, but there's also a metric ton of single army expansions that you can buy separately for even more variability. A turn in Nirishima Hex works the same no matter what army that you're using. The active player will draw so that they have three tiles laid out in front of them. Then they will have to choose one of those tiles to discard from the game, never being able to use again. Then, with their remaining two tiles, they can either play one or both of them, keep them for a future turn, or discard any that they don't want. At this point, the next player takes their turn, and play alternates this way until a battle is triggered. Battles are unique in this game, as players have a little bit of control over when they happen. Each army has a number of battle tiles in their stack, and playing one will initiate a battle immediately. Otherwise, if the board is ever full of tiles and no more can be placed, then a battle automatically triggers. During a battle, every unit that has been placed on the board will activate in its initiative order with various attacks going from highest to lowest. There are melee and ranged attacks, and they work more or less how you would imagine, but there's also other attacks that expansions bring to the game. Pretty much any tile in the game has a single hit point, so they die rather quickly, but a few will have an ability called toughness, which means that they can absorb some extra hits. Many units will also have a single attack, but others have various attacks printed on multiple sides of their tiles, allowing them to target more than one unit. Each player also has an HQ tile, which their opponents are trying to knock out in the game. Each HQ has 20 hit points, so it will take a while to knock them out. HQs also have a unique ability that gives their faction a little bit of flavor, and they can use it to boost friendly units that are adjacent to it. 
HQs can also attack every enemy unit that's adjacent to them. But they usually act in the last initiative phase, so they'll usually take a bunch of hits before being able to clear out the enemies that are near them. Every faction also has a bunch of modules that are in the mix, which aren't units and don't necessarily do anything on their own, but instead they'll boost friendly units that are adjacent to them. Carefully placing these can mean the difference between victory or defeat, as they really help you get around any deficiencies that are placed in your units. There's also various action tiles that will, that will allow you to move your units or to possibly push enemy units away from you, as well as some other things. Nirishima Hex is really a knife fight in a phone booth. The board is super tight and there is nowhere to hide to keep yourself safe and turtle. Everyone is in your face after a couple of tiles have been placed on the board, and you don't have time to breathe as the action picks up. Because units are so fragile, if your opponent happens to place a higher initiative value unit to take out your heavy hitter that was about to demolish their HQ, it can be extremely frustrating. But with careful planning, there's usually a workaround it if you can find it. Some armies also have a net unit that can prevent any adjacent units from doing anything. So being able to place one of those at the right time and then triggering a battle can be super rewarding. Now the game says that it plays two to four players, but I find it a much better one versus one game or even a three player skirmish. Some turns you're gonna draw your tiles and you have three things that you want, but have to discard one and it's super painful. While other turns you draw a bunch of garbage that doesn't really help you right now, but they may just do so if you can keep this one tile for another round or two. Because the tiles that you have access to are always face up, your opponents will always have a little bit of knowledge as to what you may be planning and can also use that to their advantage as well. The four armies that are in the base set all have their own unique flavor, but the expansions do all sorts of crazy things. There's a cybernetic worm called Mephisto that only has an HQ unit and nothing else, but it does have modules that basically turn that HQ into a gigantic wrecking machine being able to strike virtually anywhere on the board with ease. The New York Army has units that can shoot around corners and do more damage that the, the closer that they are to an enemy. And Uranopolis is another expansion with a ton of multiple hit point units that have huge attacks, but they need a power supply attached to them to be fully effective. Each of these expansions are a little bit more difficult to play effectively, so it's usually best to only use them once you've got a very good handle on the base game. Tracking initiative on units is a little bit difficult as there's various tiles that can increase or decrease their values, meaning that there's a little bit of mental math that players have to do when a battle begins. But since there can be at most 19 tiles on the board at a time, it's not too hard to keep track of. Now I did have a copy of this game years ago, but I started playing it on my iPad so much that I got rid of my original physical copy until I was able to recently reacquire it in a trade with Norm here on Cardboard Conjecture. And when I pulled this game out for game night this weekend, one of my buddies got super excited to see it again, and he called it, quote-unquote, the forgotten amazing game that was almost killed by digital. Needless to say, we had a blast, and we plan to bring it out next week as well. If you have a tablet, download the version there from your app store and give it a try. It's a great $7.99 investment that sometimes does go on sale, and you may just want to track down a physical copy afterwards. It's that good of a game. Thanks for listening to my thoughts this week about Nirishima Hex. Let me know on Twitter if you've played it, or if you're curious and want to know more about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Once again, I'm Chris Morris, 
Thanks for listening to me, and may all of your dice rolls be critical successes. Hello, my name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleInTheMoose.com, and I'm here to talk to you today about the games I played this week for Watchmen Playing Wednesday. Actually, I'll be breaking the games I played this week into a four-part series, as I just concluded an epic week of gaming. A little backstory? Last year, my group and I booked off a long weekend from our jobs and lives and congregated at a beautiful oceanside cabin. We then proceeded to shut ourselves inside for the entire weekend and gorged ourselves on board games, and we called it CabinCon 2021. This weekend, CabinCon 2022 commenced. Day one of CabinCon had our group congregate at my house in the early afternoon, as we don't get access to the cabin until about 4pm. Now, you might ask yourself, why rent a cabin for the weekend if we all live close to each other? The answer is that doing so really gets us away from our daily responsibilities and allows us to really commit our time to the weekend. In theory, we could all just gather at one of our houses for each day for the weekend, but the separation from our daily lives is important for rest and relaxation. Also, this way, no one has to concern themselves with beverage choices and driving while tired. Now, the first game of the weekend was Pandemic The Cure. Now, I've gone on and on about the Pandemic games. I've reviewed Vanilla Pandemic back in May when I actually caught COVID, and I reviewed Pandemic Fall of Rome just a few weeks ago when I was a little under the weather. Pandemic The Cure is a dice game version of the Pandemic formula. This one is a little more abstracted than the other entries in the Pandemic series. Each of the livable continents is represented by a disc with a transparent dice pip on it. Die of various colors are rolled and placed onto each of these discs. These D6 don't have the regular distribution of pips on them, like the red dice will have two, two six sides, two one sides, one four side, and the yellow and the blue and the black dice will all have various die faces that will make it more likely for them to appear on different continents. And these colored dice are representing the viruses that the players need to cure. The flow of Pandemic the Cure is to have players travel to various continents, treat the diseases which moves which moves them from continent disc into the center ring, and then take either take samples, which will tie up your player dice until you discover a cure, or treat them from that center ring back into the general supply. Each character in Pandemic the Cure have their own dice pools to roll as well. My character, the, con the Contingency Planner, allowed me to move dice from a continent onto the CDC board, which is how you pay for event cards in this game. To win, you need to collect the samples of diseases, and then after your turn, you roll the disease samples that you've collected and either meet or exceed the 13. Once a disease is cured, it's much easier to treat, and the players win the game once all four diseases are cured. Now, I haven't played Pandemic the Cure for years. My partner and I used to play Pandemic all the time, and this was a great way to vary the gameplay before the Survivor series had been announced. This version of the game is lighter, easier, and more prone to luck. Like every good game of Pandemic, you'll be cruising along treating diseases thinking all is fine in the world when WHAM! All of a sudden, cascading outbreaks are ravaging Asia and the blue illness that has been slowly building in South America is spilling over onto the North American continent. And all of a sudden, the situation is dire. The big wrinkle in the game is that you can re-roll your action die as many times as you want. Until you use them, that is. However, one of the die phases is a biohazard symbol, which will advance the infection rate, and when you cross specific thresholds on the infection rate track, you'll re-roll all the diseases that happen to be in the treatment area, and you'll add in more cubes as well. Things can spiral out of control very quickly. Speaking of quickly, Pandemic the Cure is extremely quick. 
With some luck, you can have your first cure within a few turns, and in the same breath, pulling four blue cubes and rolling all sixes can cause cascading failures that will haunt your dreams. I should return to Pandemic the Cure soon for a deeper look, as I found myself enjoying this experience quite a bit. After Pandemic, we played Baron Park, Ar Arboretum, and Sagrada, all of which you can read my full thoughts on my website. But the next game I want to talk about is Beyond the Sun. Beyond the Sun by Dennis K. Chan is a worker placement space civilization game in which players are collectively discovering technologies and progressing the lengths of human knowledge during, the spa during a spacefaring future. Now that may sound like a co-op game, but you would be deceived. Beyond the Sun uses a tech tree to unlock worker placement icons, forcing players to research the prerequisite technologies before gaining access to later abilities. In addition to researching techs, there is a sideboard where players are launching ships in an effort to colonize various planets. The challenge becomes holding on to control for a planet for a whole turn where you can then take the colonization action. Our game saw a lot of action on that planet board. It's each of the colonies were hotly contested. I tried my best to assert my dominance but failed to research any of the final level technologies and the game ended with me narrowly missing the victory, 64 points to Bigfoot 66. I really enjoyed Beyond the Sun. The variability is quite good with a wide variety of techs available and the tech tree will build out different every time. This was only my second physical play, but it's growing on me fast and I suspect it'll debut in my top 100 the next time I redo that list. And that's where I'll stop for today. Next week I'll continue on with my thoughts on Gaia Project, Seven Wonders with the Armada expansion, and a very odd game of Scythe. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at MooseMeeple or on Instagram at Meeple and the Moose. Have a happy Wednesday! Hello everybody, it's Rob from the Meeple Dungeon. I am recording today's What You've Been Playing Wednesday alone because I'm actually recording it on Wednesday because I screwed up all the days and I'm way late on this one and Anamarie's still at work. So I am going to be talking about one game we've been playing a lot this week and that game is Harry Potter Death Eaters Rising. And this game comes from The Op and designed by Patrick Marino and uh, Andrew Wolf. And this is one of uh, several games in the Rising series from The Op. Uh, we also have uh, Thanos Rising and The Batman Who Laughs Rising. And this is the third one that we've been playing uh, in this series. And this game is, yeah, in the Harry Potter universe. And it's all about trying to defend um the magical world of harry potter from the death eaters and then voldemort himself so how does this game work there's a main player board uh that has three locations on it one is uh, the ministry of magic one is hogsmeade and one is um, a diagon alley and these three locations get uh click together into a circle to form your main board and the middle of that board is going to be a big wicked uh, mini, I guess you could call it, a figure of Voldemort. And um, so the way the, the game works is you're going to select yourself a, uh, a house sort of a deal. So you can either pick Hogwarts or Dumbledore's Army or the Order of the Phoenix. And then you also, so that'll be like your player card. And then that's going to give you some options as to different characters you can be. For instance, I played as Hogwarts and then my starting character was uh, Dumbledore. And then, so yeah, once you have your starting card and your starting character, it's going to tell you the different dice that you're going to be using in this game, because this is a dice chucking game and dice allocation game. It's really, really cool. 
And the way it's going to work is once you have your card and your character laid out, you're going to lay out some extra characters from uh, several decks of cards are going to get shuffled together. It's going to have Death Eaters in it and then some uh, characters uh, from the movies, like all the different uh, good guys, you know. And um, they're going to be of different colored cards, similar to the ones that you have uh, as your player card. There's going to be Hogwarts characters. There's going to be uh, Order of the Phoenix characters and Dumbledore Army characters they're of three different colors and you're so you're going to shuffle those decks together and you're going to shuffle in um, a voldemort card as well and that uh, that voldemort card will come into play and kind of trigger uh when things are getting really dire once he's been drawn and the way that the game is going to work is you are going to choose a location of one of those three locations on the board and you're going to travel there with your team and that your team just starts as your single player. So I would only have a Dumbledore on my team at this point. And you're going to go to that location and you're going to roll the Voldemort die. So it's this green uh, eight sided die. You're going to roll it and it's going to turn Voldemort's figure into one of uh, two direct two directions. It'll either turn clockwise or counterclockwise or maybe even stay in the same spot, depending and if he's pointing at a location that you're in or other characters are in, he's going to do some bad things to you. Um, but once you've rolled him, then you take your die, the, the die that your player card uh, dictates to you. And those die are going to be rolled and you are going to assign those die to various different things. So at each location, there's always going to be three different characters there. Uh, one of which will usually, or usually a couple of which are going to be uh, good guys. And then there's going to be usually a a uh, death eater there as well that you're going to have to deal with. So you can use your die to try to uh, gain the the good characters to your team, or you can assign your die to try to take out the, the, uh, the death eaters. And so you really have to make some interesting decisions in this on whether or not you want to try and gain a character or, or try to take out one of the bad guys. And, um, yeah, you kind of do this this thing over and over and over again. Uh, so you assign your die and you do what you do and maybe you've uh, met the requirements to claim a character and then you're going to take that character to your uh, to your team. And um, then once you've done whatever you're going to do, uh, you replenish everything and then it goes to the next player's turn. They're going to do the exact same thing uh, that you just went through with uh, picking a location, rolling the Voldemort die, seeing where he's pointing and the things that he's going to do and uh, then rolling their die to see what uh, different things that they're going to come up with and uh, assigning those die to either collect characters or or take on some some uh, Death Eaters or even Voldemort himself when it, he gets uh, drawn later on in the game. And uh, yeah, you just go through. It's like a fight against time. In order to win the game, you basically have to defeat Voldemort and you have to give, uh, I believe it's five damage you have to do to him um, but in order to do those damage to Voldemort, you're going to have to have defeated five Death Eaters first because you can only deal out eight damage per Death Eater that you have uh, previously defeated. So that's basically the only way to do this is to is to take out five Death Eaters and then eventually take out Voldemort before he has gone through and ended the game for you because you can the game can end for you in several ways. Uh, we've been playing a, a two-player game most of the time and if uh, if there's too many wizards on your side defeated, killed, like uh, I believe it's eight of them. If you have eight wizards killed on your side, the game is over. Um, if any one player uh, has all their wizards on their team defeated, it doesn't matter who it is, the game is over. Uh, if four or more places uh, are corrupted, 
there's some corruption tokens that go on with Voldemort where he's uh, where he's uh, pointing. Uh, if those are corrupted, you you lose the game. And if any one location is corrupted completely, you also lose the game. So there's a whole bunch of ways to lose this game, and only one way to win it. And it is, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. We are going to be reviewing this game as one of three different Harry Potter games on the next episode of the Meeple Dungeon Podcast. So if you'd like to hear about uh, more about the Death Eaters Rising, as well as the, uh, I believe it's the uh, House Cup, as well as the, uh, what's it called? Hogwarts Battle. Harry Potter, Hogwarts Battle, Harry Potter, House Cup, and Harry Potter Death Eaters Rising. That will be in the next episode of the Meeple Dungeon Podcast. That's it for this week, and uh, we will both be back in the chairs for next week, okay? So, we will see you next week. Cheers! Hi, this is Andrew Buckle, SupportingGame.com, and I'm here to talk about what I've been playing this week. This week, I'm going to talk about my time at the San Diego Historical Games Convention, or SD HistCon. This convention ran for several years ahead of that pandemic, but during the pandemic, it had to shift to online cons only. So this was the first face-to-face con they'd done in a while. I got involved with this group by helping to run some online games during their online conventions over the last couple of years, and have since joined the board that helps to put on the physical con as well. They also have some cool other projects I've been involved with, including the free Conflicts of Interest webs magazine, which can be found at sdhist.com, and the Summit Award, an award looking to broaden the historical gaming hobby. More information on that award can be found both at sdhist.com and on my site at boardinggame.com. As for this physical con itself, it took place from November 11th to 13th, 2022. The venue was the San Diego Jewish Academy, which wound up being a lovely space for this. We had two full rooms of gaming for this. One room featured a lot of designer demos and also some vendors selling games and magazine games. The other room was primarily for open play, and it also included some scheduled plays and scheduled demos. And there was a seminar room that featured several of the top designers and developers in attendance giving presentations about what they're up to. As for what I specifically did, the highlight of my weekend was running two different games of Liberty or Death on designer Harold Buchanan's giant map with miniatures. In addition to designing Liberty or Death and several other games, Harold is the founder of SD HistCon and one of the key figures in organizing it, so it was really cool to have him bring his giant version of this and trust me to run it. Liberty or Death is the fifth volume of the Coin or Counterinsurgency series from GMT Games, and I previously discussed it in episode 32 of this podcast, published on August 11th, 2021. It's a very cool game depicting the American Revolution as a struggle between the British and Indians on one side, but also looking out for their own objectives, and the Patriots and the French on the other side, but also looking out for their own objectives, and also, ultimately, their own sole victory. The first session of this I ran was Friday night, where I got to teach the game to seven new players. This went quite well, and everybody seemed to be having fun with it, and we were able to make good progress and get quite a bit of a way through the deck. Saturday's game was even more fun, as there I got to moderate and referee a game between several prominent designers. 
There, we had game designer Harold Buchanan playing the French alongside Trevor Bender. We had Volkel Runke, known for creating the coin series, playing the Patriots alongside Cole Worley, known for Root, Oaf, and many more. We had famed designer Mark Herman, known for everything from Washington's War to For the People to Churchill, playing the Indians alongside his friend June. And we had Jason Matthews, known for Twilight Struggle, Twilight Struggle Red Sea, Sola Fide, Founding Fathers, and many more, playing the British alongside GMT head of development Jason Carr. This was a blast to watch the designers go back and forth and table talk at each other. In the end, Volkel and Cole's Patriots eventually won, but only on a tiebreak. Another highlight of the convention for me was getting to run free simultaneous games of Hands in the Sea. Designed by Daniel Berger, Hands in the Sea is a very cool deck-building war game treatment of the First Punic War between Rome and Carthage. I talked about Hands in the Sea more in What You've Been Playing Wednesday's episode 46, released on November 17th, 2021. That also covered my experience at the last SD HistCon Virtual Con. Another game I got to teach and also play was Wade Broadhead's Forged in Steel. This is a very cool game from Nightworks Games, first published in 2016, and it uses some card-driven game mechanics to model the building of Pueblo, Colorado over time. It's quite worth checking out for anyone who has the opportunity. Beyond that, I got to teach people how to play Pendragon, The Fall of Roman Britain, which is a coin series title first published in 2017 by GMT Games and designed by Morgan Guyon Retti. I also got to teach High Treason, The Trial of Louis Riel, a 2016 design by Alex Berry, first published by Victory Point Games. This is a super interesting game system that brings a court trial from jury selection to the trial itself to closing arguments into a two-player game. It plays very well and very quickly, and it's well worth checking out, especially if you're interested in Canadian history. The last game I taught and played at ST HistCon was Undaunted Normandy, designed by David Thompson and Trevor Benjamin. I discussed this game much more in WBPW92, published on October 21st, 2022. All in all, SD HistCon 2022 was a great time, and I'm looking forward to being involved in more cons I run, both online and in person. You can find more on them at sdhist.com. I'm Andrew Buckholtz, and you can follow me on Twitter at Andrew Buckholtz, B-U-C-H-O-L-T-Z. You can also find my board game writing at boardandgame.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is David from the All Games New and Old YouTube channel here with another What's Been Playing Wednesday segment. So just recently, I was able to try Massive Darkness 2 for the first time. Now, I've never played Massive Darkness 1, but from my understanding, they do play pretty differently from each other. And this is a dungeon crawl game. So much like many other dungeon crawls, you're going to pick your player character and you're going to pick the scenario you're going through. It is not a campaign game, at least not out of the box, although you can get expansions to make it one. But then you're going to go through the dungeon trying to complete whatever it is you need to complete and fight a lot of monsters along the way. So every turn, you have basically three actions you could do. So you could, for instance, move, which you usually have two movement points unless you're a specific character. You could fight, you could 
interact with something in the environment. And when you open those doors, you're going to find out what's on the other side. Now, you may know that some sort of monster will spawn, but you won't know until you get in there. And then you just draw a card from the monster deck. It spawns the monsters that are supposed to be there. And suddenly you're in a fight. Now, the monsters, in addition to just being whatever random monster they are, also get a random item that they'll be carrying which is usually going to be some sort of weapon, which can affect how they'll attack you. So if you fight a group of skeletons in one dungeon, the next time you fight them, it might be something a little different. Maybe they'll have crossbows instead of axes or uh, any number of other possibilities. Every group of monsters is going to have one leader monster as well as one minion for each player that is in the game. And uh, they'll do their best to take you down and you try to take them down as well, of course. Now, all this sounds pretty standard. Uh, you know, you have your, your special dice depending on the weapons you have. You know, you have some ranged weapons or some magic attacks. Nothing you haven't seen before, probably. But what makes this one different is that each character has their own special components and their own special way they get things done. I was able to play as four of the different classes that are in the main box. There's two I didn't do. I didn't play the mage or the paladin, which is kind of odd because if I was playing D&D, like those are two classes that I like to play, but I tried everything else first for whatever reason. But uh, to give you an example, for instance, the rogue, uh, before the rogue takes their turn, they have their own special little bag of tokens and they're going to reach in and pull out three, the same number of activations they have. And each one of those is going to have some sort of a bonus on them. And every time you activate, you're going to turn over one of those to its used side. But if the action you take matches the bonus that was on there, so for instance, if you were using it to move and it was a plus however much movement, uh, you would get that bonus. If you just turn over and it doesn't really match what you're doing, then you just take your action as normal. But that's kind of interesting because you will, especially in the larger dungeons, level up as you go and get more and more skills. You'll be adding different tokens to that bag. So you can really affect how the rogue is going to play and the likelihood that they're going to get certain sorts of abilities or bonuses for them. Another character in my personal favorite is the ranger, who is a centaur, really good with bows. So when you're going to shoot at someone using your bow, you have a special arrow deck and you are going to flip one card over at a time. Along the top, there's between one and four arrows. And so what you want to do is ideally get to seven arrows along the top. You definitely don't want to get more and less is okay, but not as good as if you hit exactly seven. So it's got this push your luck element. If you get you know, under the seven, there is a section on each card telling you what bonus that attack will get. If you get exactly seven, again, there's a bonus on each card, and it's, of course, a lot better than the ones that are less. But if you go over, you've busted, and usually those uh, bonuses on the card are going to be a negative thing for you. So it's got a really fun element. You know, you're trying to get the best shot, essentially, but, you know, if you're not careful you can miss it and really botch things. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. Now, I played this twice solo and once with my oldest daughter because she thought it looked cool. Uh, for the record, she found it kind of boring, but she's not uh, super into these kinds of games. So, you know, that's not anything to worry about. One of the solo plays I played and when I played with my daughter, it was the tutorial mission, which is not very long. So you don't get a lot of chance to really build up your character. And then I played the next one in the book. Now, I did find both of these dungeons to be pretty easy to defeat. I mean, not too shocking with the tutorial, but even the other one wasn't especially hard to win at. I never really felt like I was in danger. But I imagine that that could change with the larger dungeons because there will be more chances for monsters to spawn and more things you have to get done as these monsters are constantly whittling you down. So overall, I 
really am enjoying this game so far. I'm glad I am because I bought some expansions having not even played it. But I'm really looking forward to delving into this and trying out more of the scenarios. Uh, you could also easily uh, make up your own scenario if you wanted. Uh, obviously, you know, in this description, I'm, I'm, I'm not touching on all the rules because there is, there is quite a lot. But, you know, I think if you're a fan of dungeon crawl games, and especially if you like the idea of having one that maybe isn't necessarily a campaign one that you can knock out in maybe an hour and a half, Massive Darkness 2 is a really great game. So uh, I'm going to go further in it before I do any kind of final review. But so far, I'm really positive on it. So as a side note, we have been on the YouTube channel counting down our top 50 games of all time. And our very last part of this counting down, number 10 through 1, is going to be coming out this coming Saturday. So if you haven't caught the rest, it's all up there for you. So go check that out. Subscribe if you like what we do. I'd really appreciate it. Again, the YouTube channel is called All Games New and Old. Until next time, I'll see you all around the table. Hello, I am Aaron Millick. And I'm Royce Calverly. And we are Definitely a Board Game Podcast. A podcast definitely about board games, except when they're not. And we're back on What You've Been Playing Wednesday. Royce, what have you been playing on Wednesday? All right. So I was talking with Tim from Board Game Hot Takes. Uh, we were arguing about whether games are good, better, new games are better than old games, et cetera, et cetera great episode i think that was episode uh what are we at here 52 of definitely a board game podcast really a good episode one of the games we talked about and i hadn't actually played it at that point when we talked about it but i still poo-pooed it as basically just a combination of mechanisms from games that did it better was arc nova oh okay so this is the big super hotness still the big super hotness uh arc nova is a game you are building a zoo. Okay. And it has been, I think, fairly, uh, as opposed to unfairly, compared to ter uh, Terraforming Mars. There is a lot of similarities with Terraforming Mars. It does have a new action selection system, which has been, again, taken from other games that I quite like. But it's still, I like that system too, where you choose a card, you play that action, you move that card down if you want it to the rest of the cards move up, become more powerful. It's a really good game. I really, really do enjoy it. When I'm teaching that game, though, the people that I was playing with immediately went, oh, like Terraforming Mars. I know how to play cards in this game. And they were right. Oh. It really is that similar to some extent. And it makes me wonder why I would play this one over Terraforming Mars. So I like the theme of this one better. I love the idea of building a zoo. I love zoos in general. But I'm already invested in Terraforming Mars. Am I going to play Ark Nova? Well, I'm going to play it more just to sort of get an idea. But will I like it better than Terraforming Mars in the long run? I honestly don't know. And I don't know if there's room in my collection for both, to be honest. And then it does something that I kind of hate. And this is going to seem really, really superficial, but the board is like maybe eight or 10 inches wide and three feet long. Oh, I hate that. Wow. 
I really, this, this has been a trend in games. Flamecraft does it. Museum does it. Uh, Arc Nova does it. That they have this long, skinny middle board instead of sort of like the square yeah. rectangular board. I get why they do it. I've been told that I'm wrong on this one. I've been told that this is not correct, that other people love that shape. But I just find it's awkward to play on. I can't really see from one end to the other. And it doesn't fit on most tables well outside of the convention center. What, Great for convention tables, but what oh that's what the advantage is, convention tables. Okay. Yeah, it definitely is great for convention tables because convention tables usually are about two and a half feet wide. Right. So the standard game board often takes the whole space and you sort of have to sit around it <laughs> as opposed to, you know, yeah. next to the board. But outside of that, I don't really get it and I don't like it. And honestly, I would like the game more if it had a square board. So it'll be interesting. I'm not sure it's going to stay in my collection. We'll have to wait and see. I've <laughs> got to play it a bunch more. But at this point, it's on the fence. It's interesting. And that board is a good portion why. And I, I think I've seen this game. This is one with a big elephant on the front. Is that yeah, the, yeah, that's yeah. the one? I've seen it. Yeah. Interesting. I haven't, I've obviously looked at it, um, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure after what you said, if it's something I'll, uh, I'll approach. <laughs> no, okay. Just to be clear, I am very much in the minority on this one. I see. Absolutely. Very much in the minority. Yeah. Yeah. Well, since you poo pooed a game, I'll poo poo a game. How about that? We're all full of poo-poo today. <laughs> we sure are. <laughs> oh, I got a chance to play a Kickstarter called Imagineers. Ken Franklin, Chris Leader, Maple Games 2019. Very excited about this because the idea was build your own theme park. And somehow they managed to make that not fun. Um, <laughs> uh, the art is very childish and a little too similar for it to be exciting to choose your attractions. You're basically building attractions and your own roller coaster. Uh, you're, you have entrances to the roller coaster, entrances to the attractions, and meeples are moving into your rides, going on the rides, and you score points, and you're trying to get prestige and everything else. Um, you get to name your rides, which is okay. You have little name tags to make sure everyone knows whose ride is whose. Uh, but the actual differences between each ride, aesthetically, not enough for it to be very exciting. As you build your own roller coaster, people can go on it even if it's not finished. Doesn't that sound like dangerous fun? <laughs> a little thematic disconnect is what you're saying. Yeah. Here. yeah. Your roller coaster is supposed to be complete after you have four elements to your, like four cards building your roller coaster, but you can have people go on it, even have one card, two cards, doesn't matter. <clears throat> um, my biggest problem with the game is the actual uh, mechanism or mechanic of you have to move the meeples on the board, the people who are going to go on your ride from one ride to the next. Like it's like a Mancala kind of mechanism and it makes no sense. You can read the rules, you can watch the videos, you'll have to play it a couple of times before you totally understand how it works. It was like a process of elimination sort of thing for us before we mm. figured out how it's supposed to happen. It's very specific on how it works. Um, considering the art looks like it's made for eight-year-old kids, uh, just uh, a mess in my opinion. Not a game I'd ever play again. Is it badly explained in the rule book or just counterintuitive or both? I think 
We read the rules several times. It took a matter of finding out what it wasn't before we realized what it was. So it's very possible that the rules are just complicated or we were rushing through it. But we watched several videos and even the people in the videos didn't really seem to know much about it. They sort of glossed over it. So either they assumed we knew or they didn't. Um, Anyway, bit of a complicated mess. Uh, Not not much fun. It doesn't score that good on Board Game Geek either. So we're not the only ones. Um, yeah. So I would I would say if you were thinking about it, it's not worth it. Imagineers. All right. So what you're saying is this is a number two poo. <laughs> it's a number two poo. You got it. All right. If people want to hear us poo poo lots of other games, where should they go? <laughs> yeah. If you want to hear more intelligent <laughs> talk like this, come on over to Definitely Board Game Podcast uh, and check us out there. We're on on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can find all our episodes there. You can always reach out to us at definitelyboard at gmail.com or at board definitely on Twitter and at definitely board on Facebook. You can find us there. Otherwise, we'll just be around every other Wednesday or so, and uh, we'll let you know what we've been playing there. Sound good? Sounds good. Got anything else you want to say, Royce? Poo-poo. Say goodbye, Royce. Goodbye, Royce. Hey there, this is Tim from the Board Game Hot Takes podcast. On my table this week, I've had a couple games, the most notable being Clank Catacombs, which was just sent to be a pre-order from Direwolf Studios this week. But I'm not going to talk about that tonight. If you want to listen in about that, I'm going to give my thoughts in a couple weeks on our podcast, the Board Game Hot Takes podcast, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. But I want to talk about another game that's been on my table lately that I haven't given a lot of attention to before. And that's a Steffenfeld game, The Castles of Tuscany. Castles of Tuscany, I think, has generally been overshadowed by its earlier predecessor, The Castles of Burgundy, which is one of my top five games of all time. But I have to say, The Castles of Tuscany should not be overlooked. I think it is also a fantastic game full of fun combos, fun, quick decisions. And uh, I, would, I would definitely give it a shot. I, I got a chance to play three games this week. I hadn't played it for about a year, only played it twice before. Uh, but once we busted it out, I kept wanting to go back to it. This is a really simple game. has some, uh, some similarities to Castle of Burgundy, if you're familiar with it, in that you have a grid of hex spaces. And you're going to be able to get tiles from a general market, place them into a reserve, and then move them over to your, into your own area to kind of build out your land and, and get benefits from each of these. But this works quite a bit different from Castle of Burgundy, so I'm going to stop referencing that. Essentially, at the start of the game, everybody has three little grid tiles. You can kind of arrange them a little bit the way you want to to lay them out. And uh, you're trying to complete different regions in this map. Uh, There are about, oh, I want to say six to eight different colors of tiles you're going to be activated. I don't have that up in front of me right now. And each of those different colors of tiles does a different thing when you place it on your player boards. Uh, they might give you, um, they might give you, uh, for example, marble, which is going to let you discard that marble to take another action. They might give you workers, which count as kind of a wild resource. They might give you points. They might give you some special random benefit or bonus card. Uh, so you're you're going to be doing these things. There's a general market of tiles you can take. So on your turn, you're going to take one of those tiles out of the eight that are out in the display, or you're going to be able to draw cards the start of the game you can draw three cards or maybe it's two cards i believe and you draw two cards 
And at any time, you can discard those two cards. Your third choice of action is to discard two matching cards to take a tile from your reserve and put it over onto your board and then get the benefit that that activates. And I, mentioned, I said I wasn't going to mention it, but just like Castles of Burgundy, when you fill in a region of the same color and that's completed, then you get an extra bonus from it as well, some extra points. Um, there's a whole bunch of fun things that are happening when you play these tiles. Some of them are technologies that let you kind of build up how all of your how strong all of your actions are. There are some others that will just give you cards or others that will let you um, take a wild uh, tile that can be used anywhere on the board. They all do interesting things. Now, the scoring mechanism here, I think, is worth noting. Basically, what happens, it's played over three rounds. And in the first round of the game, you've got two scoring tracks. You've got the green scoring track on the outside of the, of the central board, and you've got a red scoring track on the inside. When you get points in the first round of the game, they move up. Let's say that you get to nine points. So at the end of the first round, and this is triggered by uh, essentially a certain number of tiles are taken off one of the player's player boards to refill the general supply. Won't get too much into that. Once the end of the first round happens, you're going to essentially move your player marker or, or on the red track, which is the inner track, to the same level that the green track was. The green track doesn't go back or anything like that. So then you keep playing. And wherever your green marker gets in the second round, then you add that number of points to where your red marker was in the first round. So essentially what that means is that all of the points you've generated in the first round are going to get multiplied by three all the, all, by the end of the game. All the points that are generated in the second round are going to get multiplied by two, and all the points that are generated in the final and third round are only going to be used once. So you have some extra benefit for really pushing for points early, but there's a trade-off because if you're pushing for points, you may be given up on some other benefits you could be getting, some of the engine, engine building benefits you could be getting. And uh, so I think it's a really interesting trade-off. And I found it to be pretty balanced. Even if somebody f seems like they're pushing ahead at the beginning, you may have made up for that by building up your engine, making your actions stronger. In the second era, the third era, you might really catch up to them. I have had such a fun time playing this. I can't understand why. It's an element of collecting cards in your hand, kind of a ticket to ride-esque um, you know, uh, mechanism where you're basically just collecting cards until you have enough where you can play something down. But for some reason, this works so well for me. I have such a fun time playing this. The engine building decisions are exciting. The little benefits, the little bonuses you get every time you play a tile out on the board are exciting. I have to say, after I'd heard some early reviews of this a couple of years ago when this came out, I was like, oh man, nobody's really too hot on this. I, I feel like this may not be a great game. And for my very first play of it, I have been completely enamored with it. And I've played again about five times now, have never had a bad play, have always had fun with it. Can't wait to play it more. My only negative with it, which again, is very minor, is that there's a lot of setup, a lot of stuff that you have to kind of put up and sort out on the board. And same thing when you're putting it away, a lot of stuff to put away, probably a little bit more overhead at the start of the game and end of, uh, end of the game than you would get normally out of a game that plays in like 50 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes. It's, it's a pretty brisk playing game. But while I'm playing it, I forget about that. It's so much fun to play. I really like Castles of Tuscany by Steffenfeld. This is one of my favorite felds out of the 10 or so that I've played at this point. And I would definitely recommend checking it out. Don't let this one pass you by. If you'd like to hear more of our hot take reviews on games, you can find us wherever you listen to, port to podcasts at Board Game Hot Takes. 
And you can also interact with us on Twitter at BG underscore hot takes, where we ask a weekly poll and then talk about it on our show. So we'd love to hear from you there until next week. Take care, everybody. Hey everybody, Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And uh, it's, you know what, it's been a while since uh, I've uh, talked about the, uh, what the community's been playing. So let's take a quick look at what the Bridge City Board Gamers community has been playing. Uh, let's start off with, uh, with Hans. Here we go. Good set of games played at CAFCON this weekend. Trictarian, Arc Nova, Planted, Endless Winter, uh, Til- Tiltern, I think. Tiltum. There we go. Uh, Woodcraft, Bonfire, Azul, Queen's Garden, uh, Mosaic, Francis Drake, and Bitoku. Uh, I'm glad that it was a con because that's a lot of games to have played. Uh, out of, uh, yeah, I've, I've drool on uh, about all of those games. Uh, Ark Nova, I have. It's fantastic. I've not heard of Planted. Uh, Endless Winter, I have that one. It's in the mail. Um, uh, and I can't wait to play that one. The Miko does the art, and I've, he's just so fantastic. Uh, Bonfire, I'll be talking about that one with my uh, little solo experience. Uh, fantastic. Uh, and uh, yeah, wow, what a lineup. Uh, Ryan, Mr. Rao, finally, I'm so happy that he's got this in his collection because I have... Uh, um, pump these games up, not Verdant, but I've pumped the other two up so much that it, I, I hope the hype um, has paid off. But he played the trilogy Calico, Cascadia, and Verdant this past weekend. Also streamed playing Champions of Midgard, uh, Flamecraft, and also a ton of games of Point Salad on BGA. And uh, a, a lot of async games of Nippon. Um, love Nippon! Uh, great economic game, and it'll make your brain break. The v- cool, very cool use of the meeples. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's I'm, I'm not going to... I could go into a review. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Calico Cascadia. The, uh, those, uh, the, the third one, I can't talk about it because I haven't got it, but the, uh, the Calico and Cascadia are such good games. They're very different, but they're very similar, if, you, if that makes sense, in regards to a lot of the architecture of the game system. Um, game design, it varies, but it's they're both so cool. Calico is a make-your-mind-hurt abstract, and uh, Cascadia, a lot of uh, pattern recognition and, uh, and uh, kind of uh, dual layering of an abstract puzzle. Very cool, very cool games. Champions of Midgard, uh, we played that one in Gamer's Garage, uh, I think last month. And yay, that's such a fantastic worker placement slash dice rolling slash Viking. Uh, yeah, it's so much fun. Uh, let's move on. Scott, much quieter week this week. Uh, for him, compared to uh, being at GridCon, uh, we have Lacrimosa, uh, Mercado de Lisboa, Marvel Champions. Wow, that's a uh, uh, Lacrimosa. I've not heard of that one. I'll have to look at it. Uh, uh, do a little bit of homework. Marvel Champions. The, I'm staring at it in my shelf right now. I, there's so many uh, uh, scenarios that I haven't played yet that I should get playing. I feel so guilty. Uh, Jason. 
Role player adventures. Oh, yay. That sounds like so much fun. Uh, Castles of Burgundy. Love. That's one of my favorite Stefan Fell games. I have a lot of favorite Stefan Fell games. That's in there. Uh, Lane. Uh, there's a great cup picture of him dressed appropriately. Uh, and he has an uh, amazing week of games for him. Anachrony. Uh, great cup cosplay. I tried to say that without laughing through the whole thing. is awesome. Uh, Imperial Settlers, Arnak, and the rest is a blur. <laughs> well, no comment. <laughs> Christina, uh, puns of anarchy. Uh, not a board game, but lots of fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, can't really comment on that. I think uh, um, uh, it's it's a card game, very much like very much like. Uh, uh, apples to apples kind of thing. Uh, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not even going to keep commenting because I'm going to dig myself into a hole. Pardon the pun. Dexton, along with a few other plays, uh, a ton of cartographers. Fantastic game. I haven't played, I've just played the base game. I haven't played any of the other expand. There's so much content coming out for that, which is such a good sign of a game that has got some great longevity and uh, and uh, so they're giving they're giving the game that has depth they're giving it at some breadth and adding some expansions, and uh, yeah, talk some more about that next time. Matt, uh, light week, uh, quite happy to get a second play of Pan Am. I have Pan Am. It's so cool. It's uh, that 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 Prospero Hall team design team is is so, it's like the Beatles. <laughs> the game has something interesting, decisions and player interactions. It does. It's not deep, but it's not light, and it, it keeps your brain working. So, nice. Uh, filling out the list, John, uh, Cher Charioteer. I hope I said that correctly. Uh, I'm, you know what? I have not, John, I apologize. I have not heard of this game at all. I'm going to put it just a second. I put it down on my list of homework. I'm going to go look that one up. And um, I'm considering... Uh, it's, it's, you know, the, 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 the player, I think it's got some, uh, some, some, some depth to it. It's probably like a six hour game. <laughs> I'm, I'm smelling like an 18 XX kind of thing, uh, or not, or maybe it's a trading in the Mediterranean thing. Who knows? Just those two guesses that those were like, you know, hit a brick wall with that guess. Um, anything could be trading on the Mediterranean lately. Um, for me, uh, I played, uh, I had some fantastic solo plays of Bonfire, Stefan Feld, and uh, it, it's, uh, I should do, I should do a, a, uh, an episode, a Cardboard Conjecture episode on solo play systems, because uh, one of my least favorite systems is beat your own points, and sometimes the Euros... That's what they have, right? Uh, but I believe I'm not. I'm just going to throw this conjecture out here. For me, at least, it was Stonemeyer Games with Viticulture, and I believe Morton Anderson with the uh, with with that Otama deck. And uh, once that that deck came out, it has influenced a lot of the solo plays, and I think the pandemic as well has influenced a lot of designers to include solo plays but uh this one has that deck system in it and it is it is very competitive 
Yeah. I, I, I think it was David, uh, All Games New and Old, on Twitter did a post on what, what kind of percentage win rate do you like on your, your solo games? And I put, a lot of people are like, oh, 50%, I'm happy with. And I must be a, a, st- a, you know, a stingy guy because I put 15 to 20%. Like if for me, a good game, uh, a good solo game, a challenging solo game, make me sit down and think it and, and, and make it worthwhile. Uh, yeah, if, if I'm winning 20, more than 20% of the time, well, I, my brain's going to kind of go, okay, well, I got it. Move on, right? And I don't like that. If I like games, I want my brain to, want to trick my brain into staying a little longer. You know, how you change the time on the snooze alarm. Uh, but yeah, so Bonfire, before I, I'm talking about the whole system of solo, uh, Bonfire itself is, uh, it's, it's a Euro, it's Stefan Feld, it's a point salad thing, of course. Um, but he does it so well. And uh, this one has such a great dynamic kind of integration between your resource table, tableau, tile, kind of multiplier it's just that one's kind of cool on just your brain working that puzzle out but then you have on the outside i mean it's called bonfire and it's a very kind of fantasy uh uh um based theme of uh of you know fantasy creatures making bonfires to bring back the spirits and i'm I'm not i'm just going off the top of my head from what i can remember but yeah ultimately you're trying to create uh, a bonfire which represents your points and then of course with this bonfire if the paths go to it there's all of these little added uh, multipliers to the point value that you can add and increase that because at the end of the game it's a euro and it's all about how many victory points you have and for all of the games of this nature that I've played this one uh, kept me I mean, I think I had probably four back-to-back plays, and that is irregular for me. So that being said right there, uh, it's it's going to stick around for a while because, you know, it, it's solo play. It's fantastic. You know, don't start thinking all those, you know, so I should put I should put like a, a sound cue in here all by myself. Hey, um, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to probably even edit that out. <laughs> uh, wrapping that up, we, that's a big crash into the planes there, hey? Uh, wrapping that up, uh, thank you so much for listening to us banter about the games we've been playing, and uh, especially me going off on some solo strategies and, and, and methodologies. But uh, yes, and we hope that we've encouraged you to go explore some new titles and some different genres too. Um, and of course, always content creators that collaborate each week to, uh, to put stuff together and, and, and make such a wonderful episode. Thank you so much. That being said, it's winter time. So really, literally speaking, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there. Eh? <laughs>